Welcome to Gravity, a podcast on the environment and human rights issues from the local to the global. How many children did it take to make your bar of chocolate? That's the question we're asking today. Unless you have bought fair trade chocolate, wherever you may be, the likelihood is that your beloved treat was made by forced child labour. Cote d'Ivoire and Ghana together provide around 70% of the world's supply of cacao, the main raw ingredient that produces chocolate, and over 2 million children labour in that industry over there. Children as young as five wield machetes, often lacerating themselves in the process of cutting down the cacao pods from the trees. They spray pesticides on this fragile crop without protective gear, work 16 hours a day, live in unsanitary conditions, are provided meager meals, prevented from going to school, prevented from seeing their families, and prevented from escape. Some children were kidnapped, often from neighbouring countries, including Mali and Burkina Faso, and others tricked into coming in the hope of securing money for their families. Money that is never paid after the supposed expenses of accommodation and food are taken out. They are beaten, often grievously injured, to prevent escape, and they are brutally used for hazardous labour to secure profits for confectionery conglomerates, including Nestle and Cargill. In 2005, international rights advocates filed a class action tort case against Nestle and Cargill with six Malian plaintiffs as the representative class who were trafficked from Mali and were forcibly taken to cacao farms in Cote d'Ivoire to work. The complaint claims that Nestle, Cargill and other confectionery conglomerates not only turned a blind eye to the prevalence of child slavery in West Africa, but that they provided substantial support to farms which enslaved children. The case has been held up in the courts in the Central District of California is currently deciding a motion to dismiss on the second amended complaint. The action is filed under the Alien Tort Claims Act, a federal tort statute that allows one to sue for torts that are recognised violations of customary international law. Today I'm speaking with Terry Collingsworth, the Executive Director of International Rights Advocates and Counsel on behalf of the plaintiffs in John Doe et al. versus Nestle et al., who has also taken Coca-Cola, Exxon, Unical and other major transnational corporations to court under the Alien Tort Claims Act for their egregious violations of human rights across the world, including slavery, torture and extrajudicial killings. We will be discussing the case against Nestle and Cargill, the use of child forced labour in West Africa, the Alien Tort Claims Act, corporate accountability for violations of human rights, and more. Hi, Terry. Welcome to Gravity. Hi. Thank you for your interest. I'm I'm happy to be talking with you this morning. So nearly 70% of the world's cacao is sourced from Cote d'Ivoire and Ghana. And according to a report by Tulane University in 2015, in 2013 and 2014, there were over 2 million children working in cacao farms there. I understand also that this labor is extremely hazardous, lifting heavy weights, wielding machetes, exposure to pesticides, and the children are trafficked into these farms. Now, in your case against Nestle and Cargill and others, your plaintiffs are six Malian citizens that were forced to work on cacao farms in Cote d'Ivoire. May you please explain to our audience the circumstances of their taking and their living conditions on the farm, as well as the labor that they had to endure? Yes. Um, as is typical uh, in the, the trafficking part of what you've described, uh, a lot of the children who are trafficked come from Mali. Um, it's a very porous border with Cote d'Ivoire, and there's a lot of, unfortunately, desperate uh, families in uh, in Mali who either are susceptible to a trafficker's lies about what's going to happen to the kid or are not particularly vigilant in protecting their children because they've that they're so poor and desperate and having trouble feeding them, it's very common for the children to be trafficked. My clients, uh, we do describe this in some detail in the in the complaint 
that we filed against uh, Nestle and Cargill, uh, they were all trafficked. Uh, in most cases, they were forcibly trafficked, although I, I would say two of the six uh we're told that they were going to get, you know, the classic great job, uh, you'll be able to send money home and so on. Then as soon as they crossed the border, they were uh, taken prisoner and held against their will. Um, when they got to Cote d'Ivoire and started working, all six of the plaintiffs were forcibly kept. Uh, they were threatened and beaten if they even tried to escape or thought about escaping. And in one instance, we described in the complaint, one of the plaintiffs did try to escape. He was caught and his punishment was his feet on the, the bottoms of his feet were slashed with machete and uh, hot chilies were rubbed in the wounds to make it even worse. And he bears the scars of that today. Um, they've described being uh, put in pens that were and locked in with other kids in close quarters, and uh, then during the day working long days doing the kind of hazardous work you described. They were using machetes. They were climbing trees. Um, they were opening the, the cocoa uh, nuts with sharp machetes, and they worked for no pay and very little food. It was it's just the classic case of. Uh, forced uh, child slavery. And the only reason that they're here today is that they escaped. They weren't allowed to leave, correct? Yes, exactly. And eventually they, they did escape. Uh, they, they Some of them worked uh, a year, some of them worked two years, but eventually they did escape and they made it back to uh, Mali. And uh, they uh, were then uh, helped by uh, a, a nonprofit organization, and somehow they reached out to me. I'm not sure exactly why they reached out to me in particular, but the stories kept coming out of that area of trafficked child slavery. So we did uh, get a team in there to start interviewing people and figure out and assess what we could do about it. You filed this action as a class action. There are only six representative plaintiffs, but unfortunately, the Stygian experience that they had is quite common. I mean, there's over two million children there, and I suppose a large number um, are forced into that labor. Yes. Well, we have styled this as a class action uh, in order to hopefully get injunctive relief at a minimum for the class. It's very difficult to have a class action for damages, but uh, if we can get injunctive relief to prevent these practices from being uh, used by any of the our defendants and setting, I hope, an example for all of the other companies, um, we're hoping that we can help everybody, not just the, the six uh, named plaintiffs who were brave enough to participate in the case. Now, you filed this action in 2004, I believe, uh, and, or 2005? 2005. Right, 2005. And now we're entering 2017. So, And I was looking at the motion practice um, on PACER, and it, it seems that the defendants have try, tried everything that they could to delay uh, this action, to dismiss this action and delay it going to trial. How will this affect discovery? Is it their war of attrition to try and either have you run out of funds or have the plaintiff psychologically give up? Is this a tactic of theirs to dismiss the action? And if they cannot dismiss the action, to infinitely delay the proceedings until you voluntarily withdraw? Yes. Uh, un unfortunately, it's pretty easy for these defendants to 
stall these cases because there are a number of objective examples that uh, the courts here are rather allergic to these kinds of international cases. So it's a strong incentive for the defendants to try to throw up any kind of procedural barriers, uh, hoping that the courts will seize on one or more of those to throw the case out. Um, we do see this in other cases besides this one. I work on a number of different uh, human rights uh, issues against uh, large uh, corporate uh, entities. And so, yes, they hire these giant law firms uh, and and go forward uh, knowing that they are going to wear us down, that we don't have the resources they have, and uh, hope that uh, either the case will ultimately get thrown out or for some reason uh, either the plaintiffs or my small nonprofit uh, will make a decision that we can't go forward. But that hasn't happened here, and it's not going to happen here. We are very committed. I brought in um, uh, Paul Hoffman, who's a private lawyer in Los Angeles, and his firm to do this case with me. Paul is uh, a human rights pioneer who even is older than I am, and uh, we are uh, working in, in great cooperation together to bring this case to trial, we hope. Now, we've talked about uh, the Stygian circumstances of what the children have to endure, uh, which is ineffably terrible. Now, let's talk about what you allege in your complaint um, against Nestle and Cargill and other confectionery conglomerates. You allege that not only did they know of the fact that a lot of their sources, um, the, the farmers that they source their cacao from, were essentially child kidnappers, <laughs> but that they actually provided substantial assistance to farmers that enslaved children. May you please elaborate on what kind of assistance Nestle, Cargill, and others provide? Yes. Well, first of all, I, I want to make very clear at the outset just how bizarre the the issue is that we are litigating with uh, these companies that we allege that they knowingly provided substantial assistance, and I'll, I'll detail what that substantial assistance is, uh, but the companies in court, if you look at the arguments, particularly the, the last round in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals and now the, the, the next, the current round of dismissal briefing that's pending before the trial court, the companies do not have even, they, they've been forced to admit that they know of the child labor, that there, the reports such as the Tulane study, there have been many more before that. They have been working with um, various initiatives to try to look like they were stopping the child labor. So they they acknowledge that they have knowledge. So what they're instead arguing is they didn't have specific intent. And they're, we're arguing over what is the standard in international law for aiding and abetting. And we're saying knowing substantial assistance is enough, and they're saying that's not enough. You have to show that they actually wanted to use child labor, that they went there and said, gather up the kids, that's a, a much cheaper way to go, and, and actively participated in it. Um, the the Ninth Circuit uh, disagreed with with Nestle and Cargill and uh, appeared to accept our standard. Um, and now the trial court is really going to look at our allegations and and make a a new determination of whether we've shown that they have the requisite intent. What we show in the complaint and what the Ninth Circuit uh, 
really elaborated on and said if these things are true, that is a sufficient uh, level of intent, is that, well, first of all, they are providing cash to these uh, uh, slave traders. Uh, they're purchasing their cocoa, and that gives the, the slave traders the, the money to continue in business in this way and uh, to continue this practice that uh, is, has gone on unabated for years and years and years. So the cash is part. They also provide uh, training and fertilizers and other uh assistance to help them grow the cocoa that they then sell to the companies and uh, that's an essential part of their business and as the uh, the ninth circuit acknowledged in in its last opinion in this case that these companies they are so large that they dominate the industry and that they control the industry and if they wanted this practice to stop it would that they have that power, that leverage with their uh, intricate symbiotic financial and other entanglements with these plantations that they they could stop the practice. And I think that's the key here. And instead of actually stopping the practice, we allege that the companies have enjoyed this sort of grace period while they're claiming they're working on initiatives, while they're delaying our case, um, they're doing exactly what they've been doing all along. So that w the more this is delayed, the more they get the benefit of the cheapest labor that you can imagine, which is trafficked child slaves. I want to go back to uh, what you said about the legal standard you are arguing over, whether they require specific intent to have liability. Now, I read their motion to dismiss, and the argument, it's, I mean, firstly, it's reprehensible, but it, it is just completely absurd because what I understand of this specific intent argument is that they're saying, well, think of, of selling gas to somebody that's going to use it to gas civilians. Well, we know, yes, that they're going to use it to gas civilians, but, you know, our intent is just to make money from the fact that they want to buy our gas to gas civilians. We don't actually have a specific intent to gas civilians, and if they didn't pay us for it, we wouldn't help them. So it's the same motive here. We don't really care about child slavery. We don't want to have child slavery, but... We know that we get cheap product because of child slavery, and we really just care about the product and our profits. Therefore, we don't have the specific intent to aid and abet child slavery, just increase profits. I mean, it seems that they're using the profit as a defense. So how can we hold any corporation accountable on a specific intent motive? I mean, if the court accepted the argument on specific intent, no corporation could ever be accountable because their specific intent is always profit. We know we're going to get another conservative justice to replace Scalia, unfortunately. And if, God forbid, during this term, we had more progressive justices leave and we have a more conservative Supreme Court, do you think that this type of absurd argument could feasibly be accepted and that no corporation could then be rendered accountable? Well, um, first of all, you, you, you hit it exactly on the head here that this is their defense is the making money defense that uh, uh, we, we don't intend this, but uh, since our our primary, if not sole motive is making money, then we didn't intend anything about the, the means of production. And when you say it out loud, it, it's, it's almost laughable. And we, it was, it was rather fun and interesting for, for us as lawyers uh, in, in responding to their arguments across 
time on these issues that we actually got to go back and read all the Nuremberg decisions and and cite to those cases. Uh, they were they were always interesting, but we actually used them as precedent and succeeded because that's exactly what the uh, the companies that provided the uh, the gas for the gas chambers for the Nazis that provided uh, military hardware to the Nazis, et cetera. They, they all used what became known as the Nuremberg defense, which was, we didn't, we, we didn't even want to do it. We were forced to do it. And uh, th- that argument was rejected then. And uh, it was uh, hopefully going to be rejected now. Knowing assistance is the proper standard because you with knowledge are facilitating the commission of the crime. And that is sufficient, we believe, under international law. But to to answer your specific question, unfortunately, if you look at the dissents uh, to the Ninth Circuit's uh, denial of an en banc review, um, they were incredulous that, uh, that, that Nestle's right and that uh, they gave hypothetical examples of how uh, uh, if you – purchased uh, a, a product, what about the consumer? Is the, If the consumer eats that chocolate, is are they aiding and abetting? So they, they tried to take it out to sort of the most extreme degree when that's irrelevant. That's not the question. The question is, could this have happened but for the company supporting uh, the, the child slavery? But there are – our cases, unfortunately, have become – real markers for just how bad the courts can be under, uh, particularly with the the Bush appointees on the Supreme Court, Um, they are so idealistically committed to protecting companies' international business that uh, they are twisting the law, they are accepting ridiculous arguments like this one uh, to make the world uh, free for uh, corporate America. To do business, um, I think that if you look at uh, it, always disturbs me if you look at the Supreme Court's uh, decisions from last year. I mean, of course, everyone hailed the uh, the marriage decision on uh, gay rights, and there were a couple of other uh, sort of human rightsy issues where individuals were quite delighted with the court's result and, and upholding Obamacare and all of that. But if you look at what they did the rest of the time. For the most part, it's a pro-corporate agenda, and uh, these cases just are, are to them, uh, a, a, a nuisance that uh, they have cleverly tried to limit uh, the scope of, and they recently really hurt us with a decision called uh, Kiobel versus Royal Dutch Shell, which is not related to the intent issue, but it's related to the extraterritorial reach of the uh, alien tort statute, the human rights law that we use. I want to further discuss the Obel, but I want to first go back to what you were saying with respect to the defendant's argument uh, reaching absurd lengths, telling the court that if the court were to found them liable for aiding and abetting child slavery, then consumers who buy the chocolates can also be liable under the same legal theory. This is an interesting argument because they've actually done their best to prevent consumers from knowing that they're using uh, child slavery. And I believe it was in 2001 that there was a bipartisan initiative in Congress to hold corporations accountable for bringing in chocolate products that were made by enslaved children. And they virulently lobbied against it. And again, in the um, the motion to dismiss and in the uh, petition to hold on bonk review, 
the defendants argued that this lobbying initiative could not be aiding and abetting child slavery because this was just their First Amendment right to lobby. And uh, and also they can't be held accountable because they had this wonderful voluntary protocol uh, in which they self-police themselves. And, uh, and how is this self-policing going? Let's see, they wanted to eradicate slavery by 2005, then they extended it to 2008. Now I believe it's extended to 2020. So on, you know, very Orwellian, extolling, on the one hand, you know, they're, they're promulgating these voluntary codes, which they extol their virtues, and then they give themselves recursive extensions. So basically, they're saying slavery is morally reprehensible, we will have no part in it, our products don't have anything to do with it. But however, we need until 2020 to uh, not use any more slaves. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, I'm glad you got that, that it really is it's 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 a dastardly position because they're having it both ways and they're they're continuing to profit from the child slavery but they're pro- proclaiming what great corporate citizens there are by by even trying to stop it even though it doesn't exist or if it does exist they don't know that much about it but they're going to try to stop it and they need more time it's it's just a circular argument there there is a um the guy that made one of the people who made the film uh, dark chocolate uh, mickey mistrada um, he is working on a new film that is really going to go back and, and try to focus on here's, here's what happened during the at least 14 years that these companies have promised they were going to stop. And he's going to interview new kids that were enslaved during that period of time just to try to show that you know this, this delay – it's not an academic debate. This has real consequences for thousands and thousands of child slaves. May you please tell our audience about the bipartisan initiative that they killed with their lobbying efforts? It would have allowed, um, would have required uh, the U.S. Customs uh, agents to not allow the importation of cocoa that was harvested by child slaves. Uh, this was, you, would, you won't be surprised, an initiative that was pushed by then-representative Bernie Sanders, uh, and it was a, a trade, a trade uh, wall that kept out uh, products made with child slavery. They killed that with the promise that they would work on these voluntary uh, initiatives, and uh, they got uh, Senator Harkin and uh, Representative Engels to join them in this very visible voluntary initiative, and they got conned. I, I, I knew I knew Senator Harkin. He worked with us on some of these issues, and uh, he used to be on our board of directors. Uh, and he, uh, he he believed them. I guess he expected that uh, these corporate uh, executives wouldn't lie to his face, and that they were going to make a good faith effort. Well, history has shown that that good faith effort was. Uh, uh, not not made. They did not make a good faith effort. No, they have not. The Department of Labor and the report commissioned by it from Tulane University show that it has in fact increased. So in yes. 2008, we had 1.75 million children, according to the U.S. Department of Labor, in uh, in forced labor in Ghana and uh, Cote d'Ivoire, and now there's over two million. So <laughs> whatever they're doing is aiding child slavery. Now, um, I, I wanted to get your opinion, if I made a class action filed in the Northern District in California. Now, we're going back to uh, discussing 
how uh, they're using the argument that, well, if we are aiding and abetting child slavery, well, our customers might, God forbid, be brought to court uh, because they're also aiding and abetting child slavery, even though they killed the act because it would have killed their own profits to forbid importation of child slave labor chocolate. In September 2015, a class action was filed in the Northern District for violation of the state consumer protection laws, including California's unfair competition law, California's Consumer Legal Remedies Act, and California's false advertising law. What the plaintiffs are claiming is that it is material to the consumer to know that the chocolate products they're buying for, um, say, their children were, in fact, made by children that are forced into bondage to perform um hazardous labor and to live in the uh, Stygian conditions that you described before um, to make this chocolate. And that if people knew that uh, these uh, chocolate products were made by children in forced bondage, that they wouldn't have bought them. And I believe that Nestle claims 97% of American families buy Nestle products. Uh, so what is your opinion of this case? And, and what do you think generally of class actions um, under false and misleading claims as a human rights area of litigation? Well, yeah, I was very sorry to see that the case was dismissed. And I, I, I do think that this is a, a valuable potential tool. Um, but in uh, virtually every state, we, we simply need better laws. And that's one that's one possible area for movement and hope in the future that the federal courts are likely to get more conservative with however long we are blessed with uh, Mr. Trump. And uh, so thinking more about state court actions and improving state court laws, I think is, is a, is a good idea. The, uh, I know I had, I had my own experience with consumer cases in California. Um, There, there was a, fantastic law that California passed. I, I want to say it was in the early 1990s that was largely uh, a, a product of a, a fairly liberal state recognizing that not only cocoa, but at that time, the sweatshop labor all over the world, the Nike problems and so on. Uh, so they passed a very nice consumer protection law that uh, pretty much all you had to do was prove that there was a deceptive act and uh, you could recover. So there is a case called Kasky, uh, K-A-S-K-Y versus Nike, where an activist uh, named Kasky sued Nike under the statute. And uh, boy, the, the companies were shocked to see that he, he had a valid claim and he, he won on the motion to dismiss and the case was getting ready for trial. And then uh, they settled the case quietly, you know, one of those really good gag orders, so no one knows how much Mr. Kasky got, but they settled the case. And then shortly after that, uh, uh, by then, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger was the governor, and he signed a, a bill that severely limited the standing requirement for these consumer cases. So that law now and the reason the 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 Nestle class action got dismissed is is a pretty conservative law that has standing requirements and injury requirements that are going to be pretty tough to to meet um so i think that we need to really focus some activist energy on uh, restoring that law to what it used to be and or looking at other states to to improve the laws but i do think that um 
there ought to be a better way for consumers to demand accurate information and to have an injury recognized that simply finding out that you ate a candy bar that was uh, actually uh, produced with slave cocoa is an injury. It, it, if only a psychic injury, but it's still it's still an injury, and it's really not about the money. I mean, it's not like you're worried that some consumer is going to get a million-dollar judgment because they, they ate a candy bar made with slaves. Uh, it's that we ought to have better information going to the consumers, and they have a right to be upset if they found out they were lied to by these companies and their massive uh, commercial budgets for, for advertising. Um, I will also mention that I tried a different tact, and I sued uh, Walmart in California on using their code of conduct. Most of these companies, including Nestle and Cargill, they have something you would call a code of conduct where they promise that uh, uh, the workers are going to be treated well, you know, we don't do this and we won't do that, et cetera. Well, Walmart had a fantastic code of conduct. It promised everything clean bathrooms, you know, breaks. Everybody loves their jobs in these garment factories that were making uh, clothing for, for Walmart. So we sued. Uh, we, got, we got some workers uh, in, I think it was six different countries, China, Indonesia, Guatemala, Bangladesh, and India. Uh, however, that's maybe five. But we got workers from a bunch of countries so that they, Walmart couldn't, like, retaliate against just one country. And we sued a class action asking for enforcement of their code of conduct and arguing that the workers were third-party beneficiaries of the code of conduct. And Walmart, of course, comes into court and says, that, that's not binding. It, you know, we weren't serious. That's just more like a goal, that aspiration. And, uh, and yet on their website, they, they were pretty clear in promising that you could be sure that these conditions were being met. But unfortunately, uh, the court agreed that... Uh, uh, using a very, in a very conservative opinion, the Ninth Circuit ultimately uh, sided with Walmart and said that uh, this is not a binding contract that can be sued upon, and uh, that people understood generally that these were, uh, yeah, more aspirational than they were binding, and so. That was a good idea, but once again, I think with a little bit of legislative tinkering, we ought to make it so that uh, you can sue on those codes of conduct or that they become part of your consumer fraud uh, case. Sure, particularly when the codes of conduct um, are on the product or uh, they proclaim that uh, we're doing our best to eradicate child slavery and you buy something with that on the product. Uh, and then they could hardly say that it's immaterial to a consumer. And I believe that if the courts look at uh, boycotts that have happened, successful boycotts, that uh, consumers these days do wield their power in boycotting products that violate human rights. The court has to take that into account, that the consumers are no longer just looking at the cheapest product. It's regrettable, as you mentioned earlier, that California restricted its standing requirements for its false advertising law when Prop 64 passed in 2004. The law used to allow California citizens to file class actions in the public interest as private attorney generals. Judicial efforts to loosen the strings were tightened by the Ninth Circuit. Now, it is my hope that we can return to a more liberal consumer protection statute that allows easier litigation for both fraudulent representations as well as material omissions. I also hope that we have stronger labeling laws as another avenue of preventing these material omissions. If people only knew that products were made by enslaved children or even enslaved adults, they would not buy them.
And this is why they do not want the labels <laughs> to go on products because they don't want people knowing what they're buying. Exactly. And while we, we are trying our best and, and part of our response in this case was to mention uh, that equal exchange, equal exchange put in a declaration and mentioned that, uh, you know, they are competing against uh, the slave uh, tainted chocolate in the, in the market. Uh, but a real problem because we've, we've worked with global exchange and others to try to get more momentum going for a boycott. Uh, but there's still a, a, a real consumer choice issue and a consumer education issue that are, are, are tough to do. Uh, that doesn't mean we're not going to keep trying to do it. But most consumers, if they go into their normal grocery store, they're choosing between three or four or ten different uh, products made with chocolate that is all tainted with child slaves. Uh, we need these smaller sort of craft cocoa companies that actually don't use child slaves to try to scale up and, and really compete in the market and, and use their advertising to say, you know, we're the ones that aren't using child slaves here. I vehemently agree. Deception harms consumers as well as competition. It might serve fair trade chocolate well to not only identify itself as fair trade, but also slave-free because it would beg the question as to which chocolate is not slave-free. And unfortunately, I would wager that the majority of people buying chocolate products are unaware that children kept in bondage made their chocolate. I would further wager that a vast number of people on knowing how the chocolate was made would have an uneasy time enjoying the supper of their chocolate as they think of these children. It's, I mean, it's a little cannibalistic. Now, um, I want to discuss this statutory sword that you wield, and not only in th this particular action against Nestle, but in your other human rights litigation, um, including you've taken Exxon to court, Coca-Cola to court, all these companies have been involved in egregious human rights violations. You have used the Alien Torts Act. Uh, can you please explain to our audience what the statute is, uh, the history of the statute, and how we can hold corporations accountable for human rights abuses abroad through it? Yes, uh, the statute is It's called the, um, we call it the Alien Tort Statute. Uh, and it's uh, 28 U.S.C. Section 1350, and it was passed in 1789 as part of the very first Judiciary Act. So the, the actual founding fathers, uh, after passing the Constitution, this was the first legislative act that uh, came out of the first Congress. And uh, they they no one knows for sure there wasn't a lot of legislative history there was no legislative history for this particular act uh, but uh, in terms of just examining contemporary discussions and so on the general agreement is that when the the country launched as its own independent republic they wanted to be able to assure the rest of the world particularly europe that uh, if you, for example, were a French merchant and your cargo uh, of of something got stolen off the coast of the U.S. by pirates, there were a lot of pirates operating at this time, uh, that you would have a cause of action in the U.S. even though you were an alien. So you could, as an alien, bring a claim and try to either against an individual or maybe you recover your property. But it, it was... The original purpose was to allow aliens to sue for violations on the high seas and other law of nations issues. But the language used 
again drafted by the same people who drafted the Constitution, the language used was very flexible and forward-looking so that it wasn't limited to uh, high seas cases or commercial cases. Uh, there are, I think, 18 words in the entire uh, alien tort statute, but it basically says an alien can sue, has a cause of action for a tort that violates the law of nations. It's it's that simple. So the very – and there were some early cases where they mostly were high seas cases. And uh, I think the last one, just off the top of my head, I think the statute was passed in 1789. I think there was a case in like the 1820s that was the last case uh, that used the statute until – um, the the Center for Constitutional Rights in New York dusted it off in this case called Philartica, and it, it involved a um, a Paraguayan national who saw the who's was here in the United States in Brooklyn, and her husband or and son I I think but her relatives her close family they were killed uh, by the right wing junta that had power and control in in Paraguay. And some of those folks uh, got asylum to the U.S. They were probably CIA cooperating people, and they they ended up getting asylum to the U.S. So basically, this this lady Dolly Philip Philartica, she saw one of the people who had murdered her family members somewhere in Brooklyn, and uh, figured out where he lived, I guess. But then she went to the Center for Constitutional Rights and said, you know, what can I do? This guy is here in the United States, and he murdered uh, my family. So they they did some research and found this dusty old statute and looked at the elements and said, well, she's she's an alien and uh, extrajudicial killing and torture are law of nations violations. So there ought to be a cause of action here. So they brought the case and uh, ultimately went up to the Second Circuit and they really had no trouble at all saying that uh, yeah, this this is it seems to fit. There's an alien, a law of nations violation. So you have a cause of action. It, there are several other cases like that were brought. There was one against the Marcos estate, um, several other sort of torture cases where the um, the torturer was here in the U.S. You might recall that Marcos, after he was forced to flee uh, the Philippines as the president, uh, he uh, obtained refuge in Hawaii, and the U.S. granted him asylum, so he, he was able to be sued here in the United States. And actually, the lawyers involved, one of them was Paul Hoffman. They got like a billion dollars, some multi-billion dollar verdict that they've never been able to collect. So nobody cared much when the victims of this law, if you will, the targets of the law, uh, better word, uh, were these generals and and uh, politicians who had engaged in murders and extrajudicial killings and so on but we then uh two two different groups i i had one group of plaintiffs and then the other group was paul hoffman and earth rights international and Con- center for constitutional rights we both sued unical corporation in 1996 because we had clients who had been basically forced by the Burmese military to help clear the right-of-way and do other work for the Unical Total natural gas pipeline that they were building across Burma. And so we brought this case against uh, Unical. And then suddenly, instead of having 
a dictator or a, a general or a, a police uh, lieutenant who had engaged in these kinds of acts and really didn't have the money for fantastic lawyers and no one really cared, no one was politically upset by this. Uh, when we sued Unical, essentially all hell broke loose. Uh, they hired uh, a couple of giant law firms, they hired Munger Tolls uh, to be their lawyers, and uh, they then really dug into this and started exploring, well, what are some defenses that could be raised here? And uh, pretty much uh, the, the rest is history. Each each passing, uh, uh, each time the courts changed and got more conservative and more particularly George W. Bush appointees were on the courts, they started agreeing with some of the arguments to limit the, the scope of the alien tort statute. And the but the the worst uh, example of that is this case called Kiobel versus uh, Royal Dutch Shell. In Kiobel, the the plaintiffs were Nigerians who had family members killed by the Nigerian military as it was providing security for Royal Dutch Shell's oil operations in Nigeria, and the. The defendants there uh, raised an argument that the case had no connection at all to the U.S. They they had this gut feeling they had something here with this Supreme Court, that Supreme Court with Scalia on it, uh, that there had to be some connection to the U.S. So they made an extraterritorial argument that the statute cannot apply to cases that arise in Nigeria with Nigerian plaintiffs and Nigerian def- uh or, excuse me, non-American defendants, because that was Royal Dutch Shell. So the um, we all thought that argument was frivolous. And they also made an argument that you couldn't sue a corporation under international law. Uh, we also thought that argument was ridiculous. Well, the Supreme Court accepted cert on the corporation argument first, and they seemed to take it very seriously, but then in the midst of the oral argument, they suddenly got much more interested in the extraterritorial issue and ordered additional briefing and a new argument on it. And uh, ultimately, uh, in a five to four decision with Scalia among the five, um, they invented this new standard that says that the any suit brought under the alien tort statute, there was a presumption against extraterritorial application but it could be overcome by allegations that the claims, quote, touched and concerned, close quote, the United States. So that that was it. I mean, they, it was a very short opinion. Uh, Justice Roberts uh, wrote it. Uh, there were – it was a five to four decision with um, the, the – the, what I can't even call them the liberal block. They're not that liberal, but uh, with uh, Breyer, um, Kagan, Sotomayor, and uh, Ginsburg were the four. And they they agreed that the Royal Dutch Shell case was a bad case, that it was, they called it a foreign cubed case. There were foreign plaintiffs. All of the acts occurred outside of the United States, and the defendant company wasn't even a U.S. national company. It was uh, combined. Royal Dutch Shell is, is a combined Dutch and British corporation. So they said that case can't be brought here in the U.S. There is no uh, connection 
and they proposed a test that allowed any case to be brought in the U.S. that um, had a, either a, a plaintiff who resided here, a defendant that resided here, or that had actions in the United States that were related to the claim. That was the, the Ford uh, concurrence by, uh, by Breyer. The majority, however, just left it with this touch and concern standard. They said, well, this case can't be brought, but it, a case could be brought if it touched and concerned uh, the U.S. And Justice Kennedy uh, concurred and basically said, yeah, that, this leaves a lot of open questions, but we'll get to them later. Well, with a, a standard that vague, um, the conservative judges, and it was just, as you know, bad luck. If you, you, you file a case, you get a judge that's supposed to be randomly assigned. You, you appeal, you get a three-judge panel that's supposed to be randomly assigned. It just so happened, though, that the first three or four of these uh, ATS, alien tort statute cases, that were decided right after Kiobel got horrible trial judges and horrible appellate panels. And we even lost the Chiquita case on the ATS. Chiquita pled guilty to funding a paramilitary group in Colombia to provide security for their banana plantations against uh, FARC, the, the, the leftist rebel group incursions. And they they pled guilty. A board member turned them in. The document showed in the criminal case that they uh, approved the payments from here. They hid the payments from here. They directed the activities from here in the U.S. at their corporate headquarters in Cincinnati. But the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals said that's not enough, that you had to have had some acts in furtherance of the, the in this case, the murders that occurred in Colombia actually happening here. So we, we were shocked. Basically, if you can't win that case where the company pled guilty to the crime of engaging a terrorist organization here from the U.S., if that's not enough of a touch and concern, then, then what is? It's really hard to conceive of that. Uh, the Supreme Court denied cert review of that, so we were hoping we would get it clarified. And uh, since then, a number of circuits around the country have decided the touch and concern issue. And generally speaking, uh, they're more aligned with the Chiquita decision than not. Uh, they're requiring much more than I think anyone reasonably expected touch and concern to mean. Um, they... Uh, there, there's language that you had to have had some act in furtherance, and we're arguing in some cases that are still alive, including Nestle, which has this issue now pending, that aiding and abetting is itself a violation of international law, and aiding and abetting slavery or murder or any other thing, and that as long as the aiding and abetting occurred here in whole or in part, that should be sufficient. Um, the Ninth Circuit appeared, did accept that argument in principle, and then remanded the case for us to amend the complaint to reflect this new issue that was decided while we were on appeal ourselves. So we didn't ever address it in a complaint. So we amended the complaint to add facts showing that they they made decisions here that touched and concerned the U.S. And now that issue is pending before the trial court, who will in the first instance, decide if we've satisfied Kiobel, and if the court decides we did not, then we'll go back to the Ninth Circuit and hope that they will clarify the standard in a way that allows these these claims to continue. That was a very long answer, but I, I, I it was a, a 
necessary. That's the story. <laughs> yes, thank you. It was necessary and it is quite unfortunate how amputated ATS has become in more recent litigation because it held such promise, but the fight is not over yet. As you said, it's a very fluid definition, touch and concern. And the one thing they've agreed on is if it's a U.S. national. Now, I... What I don't understand from a policy perspective, I mean, I understand because they're conservative, their, their view is um, for, you know, freedom of corporations and so forth over people. But uh, the, if the profits flow to the U.S. and if, you know, if the U.S. Uh, parent or the U.S. subsidiary is receiving all these profits, now, how does the liability not flow if the profits flow? I mean, that really is the crux of it from a practical perspective, isn't it? It is, and it, it it it's added this major hoop that you have to jump through, but you've, you, you again hit the nail on the head here that one of our arguments initially, even before the Supreme Court was, if someone in the U.S. is not actually liable for the law of nations violation, then, then there's no problem. You, you don't have to worry about it because it's not going to touch and concern the U.S., is it? So conversely, if someone in the U.S. is liable, then that ought to be enough. Uh, we, we made a number of variations of the argument, including, you know, there's good language in a couple of earlier cases that the U.S. should never be a safe haven for for law of nations violators. So if uh, Chiquita, for example, which is a U.S. company, U.S. headquartered, all the decisions were made here, they were, they've been given immunity under the Alien Tort Statute because not enough touched and concerned here. So they, they have essentially a safe haven as an admitted uh, uh, human rights violator that assisted a terrorist group in war crimes. Um, that's crazy. So we were, we were pretty confident that if uh, uh, Judge Garland or any other reasonable appointee by a President Clinton were put in Scalia's chair that we would get this issue reviewed and that we would win. Uh, it would be it would be a even if it's a five to four going the other way we would win. Um, but obviously that strategy is now gone, and uh, so we're we're meeting and discussing other strategies. One strategy that's already in place is that in the Chiquita case, for example, thankfully we had also. Uh, alleged Colombian wrongful death claims, wrongful death claims based on Colombian law. So the case was not thrown out. Only the ATS claims were dismissed. So we are actually now moving forward in discovery to take the wrongful death claims to trial. And in virtually all of our cases, uh, we have those parallel state law or foreign national law claims that, uh, for the most part, cover the same territory in terms of the substantive tort, but there there are some disadvantages, the main one being that most state laws for intentional torts have very short statute of limitations periods. So uh, the ATS had a 10-year statute with lots of good law on equitable tolling. Uh, so that's one problem. And a second problem is that a forum nonconvenience argument has better legs if you're challenging the the use of state laws as opposed to a federal statute enacted for the purpose of providing a forum. So uh, some cases have been dismissed on forum nonconvenience grounds that would not have, I don't think, if they were ATS cases. Now, I want to ensure that our audience understands very clearly what claims 
and accountability we're discussing here. You cannot claim any and all torts under the Alien Tort Claims Act or ATS, but only a tort that is also accepted as a violation of the law of nations. It's a very limited class of actions and actions that are egregious violations of human rights. We are not talking about misrepresentation or intentional infliction of emotional distress here, but slavery, torture, genocide. These are the actions that corporations do not want to be held accountable for, correct? That is correct. War crimes, genocide, um, crimes of that kind of magnitude. And and you, you make a good point, which before, in the early days of these ATS cases, we would often, I would often, and Paul Hoffman and others, we would be invited to like forums where we would debate lawyers from the corporations about the alien tort statute and the scope of it and so on. Because it was very, it was an interesting issue. Law schools love that kind of thing where you can get the opposing sides kind of debating the merits. The corporations used to show up. They won't anymore because we always eat them alive because their positions are, are, they might be, uh, saleable to a conservative judge, but to a law school audience or the general public, they sound as ridiculous as we were previously discussing, that how could you with a straight face say you don't have the intent to participate in child slavery when you are knowingly providing material support? That uh, Maybe you'll get a judge to believe that who doesn't like corporations to be sued, but most people were always on our side, so they stopped coming. But I once made that that argument that I questioned, it was an ExxonMobil lawyer, I questioned why they and others were so just aggressively opposed and trying to kill the alien tort statute. I then said, and I listed the crime, they said, even under a liberal reading of what the law of nations is, it includes slavery, genocide, torture, war crimes, maybe crimes against humanity, maybe a cruel, inhumane, degrading treatment or punishment, and maybe uh, prolonged uh, forced uh, uh, kidnapping or disappearance. And so that, that's the list. And I said, can you look this audience in the eyes and say that you are not 100% sure that ExxonMobil is, is not doing any of those things? I mean, wouldn't a company be able to say that? So if that's all that you might be liable for, why aren't companies proudly saying we, we don't do those things and so we don't care about whether the statute is enforced against others because we would never do that. But they're all fighting it tooth and nail because they are doing these sorts of crimes and they know they are and they don't want to face liability for it. In 2005, you wrote a very interesting article. We've linked to this on our site from the International Rights Advocates site, in which you argue that in a global economy, we need to hold transnational corporations accountable on a global level. I would think that if we don't hold them accountable, one could argue that we've provided them with tacit acceptance, a cut blanche to run rampant over people's rights. And some might even argue that this would make us complicit in their violations. Now, we've seen attempts in the US through the Alien Tort Claims Act or ATS to hold corporations accountable. And we've discussed the recent amputation of the law there. And there have been efforts in other countries to obtain universal jurisdiction of the violation of the law of nations, for instance, uh, the UK and the Pinochet case. But the limitations that we've encountered from a jurisdictional standpoint really beg an international system. Currently, corporations are not the subjects of any international law. There's no international convention or other instrument which holds them directly accountable. Is there, however, a way to frame a claim against them and hold them accountable under current international law? And if not, do we need an international convention? 
And if we do, how feasible is it to achieve this in a political climate across the world where the paradigm is between the right and the far right? Yeah, I, I, I think that, um, as your question implies, uh, that this is not going to be the time. I, I, I think that uh, we have gone backwards not only in our own domestic uh, interpretations of those obligations, but in globally. Uh, clearly, countries are losing their taste for being held accountable in any system external to their own um, sovereign laws. So I think that um, the prospects for getting new law or, or new mechanisms created is certainly in the remaining lifetime and career that I have, uh, I would say, are, are slim to none. Um, so stepping back, I think, again, we have a much better chance of going directly to the people and organizing better around uh, uh, very specific boycotts that offer alternative products and uh, better education of the consumers and, and, and generally trying to get people to know the power of the pocketbook. And one problem we have, and it's, it's just it's a solvable problem, but I've gone to, I used to go to all these international forums and speak and talk to people from other countries about this. And I, I don't do that as much anymore because it, it, it's, it's kind of a, a waste of time. It's like an open mic session in some of these settings that I've been at least. But what I try to always say is, look, I don't care what company it is, what nationality the company is. Let's pick one example of a international criminal organization that is profiting from human rights violations and show what we could do if we all united, all the activists in all the countries united around targeting that one company. If we could show one company what, what happens if you flaunt international norms and profit from human rights violations, that we can put you out of business. And then if you've done that once successfully, you can go to the next company and say, here's what we did to Acme Corporation. How, how would you like some of the same? Or why don't you stop doing X, Y, and Z and, and allow us to independently monitor and verify that you have? But we couldn't get it. People are suspicious of each other. If I'm the American, I'm always the gringo. Uh, to try to get an international movement going around these issues has been hard. So it might be that we have to start small and uh, pick a good domestic company. Or I think the Nestle-Cargill uh, combination here is is about as good as you're going to get because Nestle has a lot of accumulated uh, ill will from everything from infant formula to this ongoing use of child slavery. Uh, but I, I personally want to spend more time trying to figure out a better way to come at that and find new allies and expand our existing allies to show the power of the purse. There has been international cooperation. Uh, for instance, Bechtel Corporation were kicked out of Cochabamba and then they sued and there were protests in San Francisco where they used to be based. And as well as in Cochabamba, there was international solidarity there and they ended up settling for a nominal amount. So when we band together, when we're stronger, well, yes, we're stronger together. Uh, that reminds me of uh, a failed political campaign last year, but we are stronger together. And, that, <laughs> yeah. uh, and one thing that as an attorney fighting against Nestle in the court system, you expose what they're doing because it's all public record. We need to stop being apathetic. We need to act together. 
And you're right, it would be most effective if we picked one target and threw all our joint force at it. And Nestle is a perfect contender for such a solidarity campaign. I mean, let's look at its water bottling practices, taking water from drought-stricken California, illegal extraction and demineralization of water in Brazil. And you mentioned the infant formula scandal. They were dressing up sales reps as nurses to promote infant formula to mothers in least developed countries, countries where the water which you need to give infants if you're giving them a formula, you have to mix it with the water. Uh, The water had waterborne diseases and they knew that once the mothers had weaned the babies, uh, they were impelled to buy formula because they couldn't breastfeed them any longer and they didn't have money for the formula, so they were diluting it. I mean, it's, it's heinous and not to mention, of course, the use of child slavery in their chocolate products. What baffles me... I'm quite flabbergasted that this case has not received more media attention and more opprobrium. It really should be in the front pages. It it is so heinous. I commend you for continuing to fight for over a decade now in this case against Nestle and for your other cases against Exxon, Unical, Coca-Cola and others to hold them accountable for their egregious human rights abuses around the world. I appreciate that. I do think that... um the the press issue is it's interesting that we're not getting a lot more nestle is a huge advertiser but i think uh generally the folks who are interested in in the press in the in the human rights issue their their attitude pretty much now is uh well win one of these against a big company and then that'll be news but uh you know we're we've been watching this go on for years and years and years and don't even really yet believe that you're going to succeed um, so I, I, I'm going to take them at, I've been told that, and I, I'm going to hopefully accept that challenge and, uh, deliver up, uh, Nestle and Cargill to a jury and, uh, we'll see what happens then. Cause I think that when you get these kinds of issues before a jury, that they're going to be as, as outraged as, uh, they, a, a normal human should be. Well, thank you very much for your time, Terry. Thank you for your time and interest. And, uh, I, I appreciate your efforts to help us get this issue out there to a new audience. Today, we discussed forced child labour in the cacao industry in West Africa, but child labour and forced child labour, although one may argue that all child labour is in some way forced, is rampant. Albeit it may not be an exhaustive list, a good source is the US Department of Labour, which lists the countries and industries that use child labour and forced child labour. And you can search on their website by country and category to see if the products that you buy are made by the forced toil of children. Hope you have found this podcast insightful and will join us next time as we explore more issues affecting our environment and human rights at home and around the world. For more materials on this issue, please go to our website, thegravity.fm.